Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Good evening, ladies. It's Jessica, and we are back with episode six. Today, we have a new guest, actually somebody I just recently met thanks to an email from somebody who had attended Story Night and felt that this particular guest needed to share her story with us. And once we talked on the phone, I couldn't agree more. So Kamalini, welcome to the Story Night podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Would you start us off with just a brief introduction of of who you are? Yes, my name is Margaret Kamalini Kumar, um, but I go by Kamalini because I am originally from India and that's my Indian name, and it means a water lily, and I, I love to use my Indian name. So I'm Kamalini Kumar, and uh, I just moved to McMinnville five years ago after I retired. Well, we're very glad to have you here, and very glad to hear your story, because as I recently learned, uh, your story includes many more places besides just McMinnville. Before we dive into uh, your past, I wanted to ask how you were doing, how are things in the present life in pandemic world? How have you been af- affected and any positives or negatives that have come out of this for you personally? Well, I've listened to a couple of your other podcasts and I, and I realized that there are other women who are in the same state that I am in. And that is, I'm a widow and I was widowed four months after I landed here in McMinnville. Um, so, you know, I have that in common with a lot of women. And so I am alone uh, in my home, but I will tell you categorically, I'm not lonely. Uh, I'm extremely healed as others do very blessed because we, we have a roof over our heads, our refrigerators are full, we are healthy. And when I think about the condition of so many people around the world, the, the poor, the marginalized, the immigrants, the refugees, I am so grateful. For where I am. I uh, have read about 13 books in the last 40 days. And I've knitted and I've been in touch with all my friends and my daughter calls me every single day. So things are good. I'm working out in my garden and uh, very, things are fine. I just miss my grandkids. Understandable. You know, we didn't really intend for the initial episodes to have the commonality of widowhood. It just kind of turned out that way. But I think that is one of the points of sharing our stories. We notice how many chapters or how many threads are so similar with all of these other women that you can really connect with. Well, with that, I'm going to stop talking because your story is amazing. And I know how many women want to hear that. So I would like to just invite you to dive in and share your story with us. Thank you. I was just telling Jessica before we started that as I was reading my Bible today, I am so aware of the fact that we read stories and God enters into the stories of our lives and makes it count. And I I have many stories to tell, but I will start with the story of my family and how we became Christians. Both uh, of my great-grandparents were Hindus, 
And they emigrated to Myanmar, which was Burma when they emigrated from India and worked there. So my grandparents were both born in Rangoon, which is the capital of Burma. And um, my grandfather on my mother's side, now remember that I wish we had as children a lot more questions of um, our families about their background. But we didn't, and they probably didn't feel like talking about it either. But so I'm recalling from memory things that my mom and dad told me. So my grandfather on my mother's side, when he was a young boy in his teenage years, fell ill with typhoid and almost died. And some missionaries in Burma apparently nursed him back to health and shared with him uh, the story of Jesus. And then my grandfather came to faith at that time. And they named him Lazarus Dawson because he uh, was raised from the dead practically. And Dawson is an anglicized uh, name of his Hindu name. And so my mother was born into a Christian family. My grandfather on my dad's side they were Hindu, they were Brahmins, which is the highest caste of the Hindu religion. And my grandfather worked in the high court in Burma. So they were brought up there. They, they were not affluent, but they were well-to-do and, and lived well in Burma until the Japanese invaded uh, Burma in, in just before Second World War. And they were indiscriminately slaughtering the British and the Indians as well, because Indians were allies of the British. And so all the Indians that lived in Burma had to quickly be evacuated. My grandfather on my, on my mother's side had the help of the British army and his family were able to get into one of the last ships leaving Burma to get to India. So they escaped safely but a lot of their family didn't. And my grandfather and grandmother on my dad's side just had to flee with the shirt on their backs. And most of them, they trekked across the jungles of Northeast Asia from Burma into India, back to India, they walked. And there were many, many deaths on the way, many accidents, and as you can imagine, much starvation. My dad was one of seven siblings. And when they walked across the jungles, um, they starved literally. My dad once told me that he remembers that they had nothing to eat and were actually eating grass because there was nothing to eat. And one night when he lay down uh, to go to sleep between two of his brothers, when he woke up in the morning, his two brothers were dead. He was the only survivor. And anyway, when they reached um, the outskirts of Calcutta on the east coast of India, out of seven siblings and, and two parents, my dad and a sister were the only ones alive. The rest of them had died on that trek. My dad was all of 19 or 20 years old and had malaria. He was very ill. And he found his way from Calcutta down to Bangalore, which is in the south of India, where my mother's family happened to be. And he was literally wandering on the streets looking for food or looking for work when he happened to see my uncle, 
who was my mother's brother, and recognized him as somebody who he had seen in, in Burma. And so he went up to him and said, are you from Rangoon? And my uncle said, yes. And he asked him, he said, I've seen you there. And where do you live? And in the course of their conversation, they discovered they both lived in the same, on the same street, a few houses apart. But because my dad, uh, on my mother's, my parents, I mean, grandparents on my mother's side were Christians, and on my dad's side they were Hindus, they didn't have anything to do with each other. The long and short of this story is that my uncle invited my dad over to his home, and that's where my dad met my mom. They were both 19 years old at that time, and uh, they fell in love. You know, in those days, and still is, um, arranged marriages were the norm. But my parents fell in love, and my dad converted to Christianity. Just to marry my mom, I don't think it was, you know, really a bona fide conversion as it was. But um, he married her. They were both 20 or 21, something like that. And they had five of us children in the next seven years. Now you can imagine, they were refugees from Burma. They were dirt poor. They did have no, they had no education, no prospects of good jobs with five children to raise. I was the eldest. And then I had three sisters and one brother. And we grew up in this tiny little room with, with a bathroom and kitchen outside that was part of somebody else's home that they allowed us to stay in. My memories of my childhood were abject poverty, being hungry a lot, going to bed with my stomach hurting because I was so hungry, wearing hand-me-down clothes, shoes with holes in them. But even though those are all vivid memories for me, I just recollect happy times. I just recollect the number of friends we had and, and the fun we had together. And for some reason, our home was always the center. There were always kids in, in our compound, in our house. And because we were refugees, the Christian school there admitted us on a very, with a, with a large subsidy. And they gave my parents almost a free education for us. We hardly paid anything. And even with that, my dad was often unable to pay school fees. And there were times of great humiliation when the school secretary would come to my classroom and call me out and say, go round up all your sisters and your brother and go home. You haven't paid your school fees and don't come back till you pay your school fees. And I had to go to every room and pick up my, my siblings and go home which was very hard for us because we were all good students and we loved school. And our teachers would feel so bad they would send home a lot of homework and help us to catch up and keep up. But God, in his great grace and mercy, gave us all just a resilience, I think. We were, all of us were very good in school. We did very well in school. And in some way, shape or form, we all pulled ourselves up and our parents did the right thing. They, they knew education was the, the way out for us. They knew that education is what would get us to where we needed to be. 
And so in my childhood, I experienced the provision of God, even though I didn't understand that that was what was happening, that he was providing for us in, in by way of food and kind people around us and good education and good schooling and things like that. And then when I was uh, at 12 years old, Billy Graham came to India on a crusade. Now, my mom was very particular that all of us children went to Sunday school and went to church, even though my dad didn't care much for all of that. So I went to this Billy Graham crusade, and I will never forget what he spoke about. He talked about hell and described it in very, very graphic terms and said the only reason Jesus came to this earth was so that we wouldn't go there. And so when he gave the altar call, I ran up as fast as I could. And my only motivation was I did not want to go to hell. And that's why I became a Christian. And, you know, that was a fairly flimsy reason that I was 12. But God took that reason. God took that decision very seriously. And I'm so grateful that he did. Because even though I was you know, a good girl. I went to church. I did all the right things. There was no evidence at all that I understood what my decision was. But in my early childhood, in my school days and my adolescence, I realized God was preparing me for something. There was a, a preparation time there that began with this first step of not wanting to go to hell. Well, as time went by, um, I did very well in school and I, I wanted to be a nurse, which was so against my dad's wishes because my father, his thinking was very much that of a Hindu Brahmin and he thought that nursing was a very menial education, I mean, um, a career where you had to take care of other people's bodies and he was not at all happy that I made that decision. He wanted to me to be a physician. Um, because he thought that I had the brains for it. And I, I argued a lot with him and told him that nurses need brains too. And anyway, I eventually won out. I won a full ride to, uh, to get my bachelor's of science in nursing in the most reputable nursing college and school in the nation. It was first in the nation, 10th in the world, my college of nursing. It, uh, it was, I got a stellar education. My sister next to me became a physician. She's an obstetrician gynecologist. My third sister married pretty young. She married a businessman and they moved to Bangkok where she now lives. And unfortunately, her husband passed away in 2007, but she has two sons and she lives with them. My brother became a banker and he moved to Iowa where I was. And then my youngest sister is now the CEO of a a non-profit huge counseling center were a very successful one. So we all, we all did very well in life uh, from where we started. And we realized that God protected us from so many things, uh, so many things that could have gone wrong. We felt his protection. And then I came after my uh, education, I came to Canada to do my postgraduate work. And um, that's where I met my husband. That's another story that will take two hours to tell. 
Uh, he's a thoracic, was a thoracic surgeon and, um, lived in Chicago and drove 15 hours every weekend. He was off to, to do this long distance dating and eventually got married in Chicago. And, um, he did his residency in thoracic surgery at the University of Missouri. And I taught nursing at the University of Missouri at that time. And in our early marriage, since I hardly ever saw my husband, he worked 16 hour days. God taught me patience. He taught me how to wait because I was forever waiting, waiting for him to come home, waiting for him to do something. Wait, I never, I wasn't driving a car. I had to wait for him for everything. And, and then we, we did well. I had two children. My son is the eldest. My son, lives here in McMinnville. He's a surgeon also, and he practices at Willamette Valley Medical Center. And my daughter's on staff at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. She, um, she is a crisis counselor there and a very busy, busy gal over there. And so, um, my two children were both born here in the United States and somewhere in, but when we were married about eight or nine years, Five of our closest friends, uh, four of them were my husband's partners, and one of them was uh, my uh, lawyer, our personal lawyer. Five of them were going through a divorce because these men were all having affairs, and their wives, who were very close friends of mine, were, I mean, we vacationed together, we socialized together, we knew each other very well, and so... This made me extremely angry. I was very, very upset with, with these men for what they were doing to their wives. And these girls would be in my home just weeping, not understanding what was happening to them. And what, what I did was I projected my anger on my husband because I was so afraid that he might do this to me, just like his friends were doing to their wives. And so that was a very difficult time in our marriage. We, we fought a lot and we argued a lot and we found fault with each other for everything. All because of this fear that I had that he was going to do to me what these other guys were doing. That was very hard. But one promise we made to each other on our wedding day that we would, we would not go to bed angry. We would make things up before we slept. And believe me, sometimes we would fight till four in the morning, but we would make up before we went to sleep. And so one night, it was around two in the morning, I don't even know what we were fighting about, but we were very upset with each other. And he finally said to me, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to leave? And that's when I started crying and said, that's my greatest fear, that you will leave me. And what will I do with two small children in this country? And he said, I would never do that to you. I said, I bet those other guys said the same thing to their wives. And then I said to him, you know, we are physically, physically compatible. We're emotionally compatible. We are, you know, intellectually compatible, but spiritually we're far away from each other and from God. And he said, you're right. Get up. Get up, he said, and we got, I got up. He said, let's kneel down by the side of our bed. And we did that. 
we committed our lives, our marriage, our careers, our children, our home, everything we had. He said, Lord, it's yours, take it. And that was the turning point of our lives when we did that. And we went to bed in the morning, my husband said, Honey, if I'm not in the hospital, if I'm not in the clinic, if I'm not in the operating room, I will call you to tell you where I am. And I said, you don't have to do that. I trust you. And he said, well, I will call you anyway. Anyway, two or three months later, there was this radical change in both of us. But two or three months later, I was walking up the stairs, uh, going upstairs, and my children's bathroom was the end of the hallway. And my daughter was brushing her teeth. And with, with the toothbrush in her mouth, she must have been seven or eight, she said to her brother, you think mom and dad are going to get divorced? And my brother said, don't be silly. They're not going to get divorced. And she said, how do you know? He said, I'm telling you they're not going to get divorced. And I just stood still wondering what was going through the minds of my children. And then my daughter said, they love Jesus too much. They wouldn't do that. And then I realized that our lives were being watched by two small kids. And I told my husband, do you know the awesome responsibility we have? That two other lives are dependent upon our witness. And believe me, that was such a lesson that we both learned. Throughout our life, we experienced the pardon of God, the peace of God, the power that he gave us, and, and he truly gave us a purpose. My husband became a, I mean, he was an ardent student of the Bible. We had a Bible study in our home for 28 years, every single Thursday night. Whether he was on call or not, he prepared, and he and a friend led the study. And that was such an eclectic group. We had 17 or 18 people from seven or eight different churches. We had judges, we had doctors, we had nurses, we had housewives, we had firefighters. We had two felons who, you know, received Jesus in jail. And when they came out, they became part of our Bible study group. And my husband faithfully led that group uh, for all those years. And when we both retired, we were both in leadership in our hospital. My husband was a chief medical officer and I was in nursing leadership. We said that we would move to the, to the place where we had grandkids first. And so McMinnville won because my son had two little ones. Or he, he had one and then after we moved here, he had his second one. So that's how we landed up in Four months after we landed here, my husband died of a reaction to a drug that he had been taking for his heart. And ah, that's another story for another time. But here I am. I am uh, so, so grateful uh, for the peace and the presence of God in my life. And as I've traced it from childhood up to now, I know he has a, a glorious plan. And, you know, live or die, I'm going to be a winner. So that's my story. You know, I imagine that many listeners just like me are leaned in and wanting to know all of the rest of the stories. Well, um, yeah, because, um, you know, my, my story 
something, a nurse, where God led me there to travel, you know, around the world. And I've traveled to all seven continents. I've been to many, many countries. And I hopefully, you know, we can't control much, but we can influence a lot. And I hope I've influenced a lot of people in nursing. Well, I'm hoping you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit more about your nursing career. I, I know nurses and doctors and everyone in the healthcare really they've always been heroes but especially right now just the attention on them is is even higher because we're extremely grateful for everything they're doing so i i would love to talk about that because i'll tell you uh this is the who has declared 2020 the year of the nurse and the midwife and they couldn't have chosen a better year to highlight uh, what these brave men and women are doing, running into the fire and putting themselves at such a risk. When I wanted to be a nurse, it was because I, I found out in myself, I have an extreme amount of patience with people who are ill, much better. I was a pediatric nurse and, and was, was able to take care of sick kids much better than well kids. I just, there was something there that I could do. But anyway, I had, I had hardly finished my bachelor's of science in nursing when the dean called me and asked me if I would stay and, and teach at the university. And so I said, fine. And so as I got into my career, I realized that this is where, where my giftedness lay, that I was a teacher and, uh, and, and loved, you know, my, my thrill was to see the light bulb come on in, in my students as they understood concepts and as they were grasping what I was trying to teach them. And so that became a passion for me to get into the teaching profession. And so that's what I did. I taught nursing for three years, pediatric nursing. And then when I came to Canada, I did a post-graduation in neurological nursing. And then the dean called me there and asked me if I would teach. Uh, at the university, which is part of McGill University in Montreal, if I would teach. And I said, you know, I, I'm here on a student visa. I have to go back within the next few months. And she picked up the phone and she called the Canadian embassy and said, remember, this is 1971, where they were desperate for doctors and nurses. She said to the person, to the ambassador, I have a nurse I'm sending you. Give her a, a visa. Give her a green card. She needs it now. And within three days, I got a Canadian green card, which now takes seven or eight years to get, I think. And so there I was. I was teaching um, in Montreal. And then I got recruited to teach at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. So I was teaching nursing there. And that's where I met my husband. And we had this long-distance romance. And, and then I moved to Chicago, where we got married. And then he had to go to... Missouri to University of Missouri to do his residency. So I ended up teaching at the University of Missouri, um, maternal child health nursing. And so everywhere I went, God opened doors for me to be at universities teaching. So I've taught in about five different universities. And then we landed up in Clinton, Iowa, which is on the banks of the Mississippi is where we lived, just two hours west of Chicago. And my husband was in practice there. And for a few years, maybe five or six, when my kids were in elementary school, I stayed home 
but I kept in touch with the profession because I taught uh, seminars and workshops for continuing education while I was home. And then once they were in junior high, I went back to work again full time again, yeah, teaching and nursing. And one day in 1988, a cousin of mine who came from India, she was the only other nurse in the family. I have eight physicians in my immediate family. Between my siblings and my husband's siblings and our children, there are eight of us that are doctors, and I'm the only nurse. And my cousin, who's my mother's cousin, was a nurse, and she came to visit me, and she said, so, Kamini, how many nurses have you taught? I said, hundreds. She said, how many nurses' practice have you changed? I said, I hope a lot of them. And then she said, and how many nurses have you won for Jesus Christ? And I said, none. And she said, aren't you wasting your life? Get up and do something about it. And she just threw the gauntlet down. And I thought, wow, there is a purpose for me being a nurse. Not just teaching, but witnessing, being a witness. And so she invited me to a conference that she was going to, which was Nurses Christian Fellowship International, uh, NCF International. And this was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I don't know if you know about Ivy. So I went to this International Congress uh, in Philadelphia with her. And there were probably five or 600 nurses from, from 40 different countries in the world. And I sat with a girl from Norway on one side of me and a, and a girl from England on the other side of me and a girl from Korea in front of me. And when we had small groups to pray, we would just turn around and form the small huddle and pray. And you know, those people are still my friends today. I met them in 1988. And uh, once I got into that group, I thought, this is heaven, because here we were, nurses from all over the world singing praises to this one, the only one God, Jesus Christ, everyone singing in their own native languages, how great thou art. It was awesome. It was something I cannot even describe to you. And that's when I pray and ask God, if this is what you want me to do, then you open the doors. And right away, I got asked to be a, a speaker at the next regional conference. So from 1988 till today, I have spoken at, I cannot even tell you how many international and regional conferences. Um, I was nominated to the board. I have been the board president for eight years. I have been I'm still on the board of Nurses Christian Fellowship International. I was on the board of Nurses Christian Fellowship USA. And so have mentored many, many, many nurses. And my passion in life is to teach nurses how to put their faith into practice, to teach them how to assess and give spiritual care to their patients. Because nurses are very good in giving physical care and emotional care and psychological care they don't know how to reach the spirit of another human being until they have reached, been reached by God himself. And so this is what I tell nurses. When a person is lying flat on their back, the only place they have to look is up. And the only time they think about God is when they are vulnerable and when they are terminally ill or when they are in pain. 
and the only face they see and the only hands that touch them are yours. Are they feeling and seeing and touching the hands of Jesus? Are they seeing the face of Jesus? You walk in a sacred, holy place. Do not miss the opportunity. And I'll tell you, there are stories upon stories about how many nurses have led patients to Jesus Christ. How many nurses have led doctors to Jesus Christ? And the, the fantastic opportunity we have in healthcare because, you know, a country can be closed to the, to the, to the missionaries or to Christianity, but it's always open to doctors and nurses. We can go anywhere. We, I have friends that work in the refugee camps in, in Syria and Lebanon. And those nurses lead these women to Christ, these refugee women. And one of them told me, you should hear um, these women praying. They thank God every day for ISIS because without ISIS, they would have never come to know Jesus. If they did not have to flee from ISIS, they would never have met Jesus, so they thank God for ISIS. Now you think, this is the kind of world nurses live in. And so my greatest joy in life is helping a nurse to know how to share Jesus with her patients. And so I've spent all my life doing that, and um, still am doing that. And um, we were supposed to have an international congress in Denver in July of this year, and I was the congress director, and I had been working for the last three years to, to get this congress ready. We were expecting about 300 nurses from around the world, plus nurses here in the United States and Canada. And uh, I had all the speakers lined up and the breakout sessions and everything done, and we had to postpone it next year because of the pandemic. And so I'm still the Congress director. We will still have the Congress next year. And so I will probably do my last keynote address when I do that there. And so, yeah, you may retire from your career, but you can never retire from life. My goal, I have been mentoring young nurses. And I, uh, I've had a Nurses Christian Fellowship Bible study in my home the entire time I lived in Iowa. I tried to start when, when I was here in McMinnville and I had eight or nine gals who came, but most of them came from Salem and, and Portland and that was too much for them to make that long trip. So maybe someday I will have a nurse Bible study here in my home with nurses from the local areas. I still haven't uh, gotten my foot in the door yet, but I'm on three international mission boards that I'm very busy working on. So. Yeah, life is not busy. Life is full. Life is full. But that's just a little picture of my nursing career. And I've said, you know, I believe in the fact that none of us, I mean, our circle of control is so tiny. We have no control over anything. Even the words that come out of our mouth, sometimes we say, did I really say that because it came out so fast? We have no control. Such a small little control. Our circle of no control is as big as the universe. We have no control over how our two-year-old behaves or what anybody else says or does or the weather. But still we expand all our energy trying to control the things we have no control over. But we do have a circle of influence. And that circle of influence 
we're always looking at it. We're always being a negative influence or a positive influence. And so I say to the people I mentor, make sure your circle of influence is growing and make sure that it is positive and make sure that what you're doing as at all times people are seeing Jesus before they ever see you. That's my circle of influence in my career. I continue uh, to write. I've written um, lesson manuals for Mrs. Christian Fellowship. And I've done leadership training and spiritual care. And death and dying is one thing that I taught a lot of. So I went through my own experience. I had known about death and dying through research, through reading, through uh, observation, but I had never experienced it. And now I have a deeper understanding. Uh, and when my husband died, all I said was, I will see you again. Not as my husband, but as the bride of Christ. And I cannot even imagine how glorious that's going to be. So, live or die, I'm okay. Yeah, well, I'm probably not the only one with a few tears in my eyes. <laughs> you have so much to your story and, and clearly so much wisdom. You've said so many things just throughout this short conversation that could be titles of books and series. And it wouldn't surprise me if some people hear this who are in the healthcare field, who are nurses, if that's the case and they want to somehow... Please give them my information. Okay. I'm, I'm more than happy. I'm mentoring a couple of young nurses right now, and, and it would be my joy and my pleasure, especially Christian nurses, to get in touch with for sure. And, and, you know, maybe someday when you do your live things again, I can come back and speak because I do have, ah, uh, I, I mean, mir miraculous things uh, in my career. So that would be wonderful. I am really hoping, I mean, when we do get to the point where we can gather in a large group again, I have a feeling there'll be a lot of podcast speakers that have more to share and yeah. it'll be pretty neat to have them come back. And we would we'd love to, I want to hear more. I kind of want to just to stay on the call with you and hear the rest. But, you know, as we're starting to wrap up here, you've said a lot of encouragement already, but is there anything else right now that you'd love to be able to just say to the nurses and those who yes. are caring? Yes. But they're on the front lines right now. Yes, they are. You know, to nurses and doctors for you to understand that you may think you're doing your duty, but actually you're doing what God is wanting to do amongst the poor. I mean, and, and especially the suffering. Uh, I always ask people at every conference that I teach, do you know what the meaning of the word patient is? Why do we call these people patients? And people don't know the answer to that. They keep saying, oh, they have to be patient to get care. No, no, it has nothing to do with, with patients. The word patient in, in Latin means the suffering one. That's what it means. And when you see someone suffer, what it should engender within you is compassion. And the compassion that you should have is the type that Jesus had, where he was willing to not just look with pity, but actually do something. And so whatever you do, make sure that it's done with the motivation of love that Jesus had, because people do a lot of good things with a lot of wrong motivations. 
But as Christians, we need to say, God, use me in any way you want. And then, so I would ask for people who are listening to this, please pray for the protection of the doctors and nurses and pray for their strength and their stamina. And I cannot tell you how many of them are probably sitting down in a corridor because they've lost another patient. And um, I I don't think people see the sorrow that healthcare people suffer when they lose people. It's very hard. And so just pray for them that God will bring them through this. And I encourage all of them who are working in the field to know that this didn't happen by accident. And God knew long before they were born that this day would come and this is where they would be. God has placed them within these boundaries. So just bloom where you're planted and do what God is asking you to do. And he'll take care of the rest. Could I ask you to close us in prayer? I will, sure. Father, we thank you so much that you have heard this conversation, and I do pray that your blessing is upon it, and it comes up to you as a sweet-smelling savor, because all we want to do is honor and glorify and magnify you, because it is not about us, Lord. It's not about you. It's not about us, but it's what you have done, and it is what you want to accomplish through us, and so for that, I'm grateful for this opportunity. I pray for everyone listening to this podcast that they will understand that God has a great plan for their lives. God has great provision for them. He has a great protection over them and he has pardon and peace and power and purpose. Lord, as I, as I looked over my own life and recognized all these things, I pray that each one listening will get that same feeling as well. Thank you for the great love you showed when you sent Jesus. Thank you that we have just celebrated the fact that he is risen and he sits on the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. Lord, how good you are, how holy, how righteous, how gracious, and we have the privilege of being called your children. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all you have done for us and all that you are to us. We pray that we will be faithful till the end. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for opening up your story to us. It's a beautiful one, and I know we didn't even get to all of it. Well, thank you for asking me. It was my pleasure to uh, share. And someday, you know, someday (laughs) God will allow all of us to be part of his story, and that's what we need to aim And I want to thank Jackie, who hopefully is listening, for sending me the email recommending you. Mm-hmm. She kind of voluntold you yeah. <laughs> to yeah. share your story. She, actually, she doesn't know this part of my story at all, so I think it will be new for her. Well, God knew it, and he had a <laughs> plan for you to come on here, and, and I'm just so grateful. And if anybody nurses, anyone in the healthcare field, or if for any other reason, if any other part of this story resonated with you and you just want to get connected a bit more, please reach out. You don't have to live in McMinnville or even Oregon. We're here and, and this community is so focused on being available for women and just helping us stay connected in the middle of all of this. 
you can easily reach us. CalvaryMac.com has every everything there, and I'd be happy to help you get in touch with any of our amazing speakers who've been sharing their stories. And I, I just wanted to add that I go to Creekside Church, you know, and I have a wonderful body of believers that I'm, I'm so privileged to be part of, part of the Women's Bible Study, that show my, my Creekside friends heard me. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the things that's pretty special about this, actually. Even though this current ministry, well, it started in Santa Barbara and then made its way to Calvary Mac, but our first couple of speakers uh, were actually from Church on the Hill. So mm. it's not an exclusive story and night family. How it should be. Yeah. That's how it should be, yes. Yeah, we're all, we're all a family together. Mm. And um, I'm so glad you're in the story night family now. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, um, everyone, for listening, and we hope uh, you'll come back for the next story from our next speaker. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.